HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This piece was brought to you by Roberta's, robertaspizza.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're bringing you four stories about lost and found culinary treasures. We are searching for what will be lost, and we're trying to rejuvenate it. What we try to do is collect these sourdoughs that contribute to the biodiversity of sourdough in order to store them, to document them, and be able to preserve them for the future. It's bringing back the history and just being part of that time that just, it's, there's nothing like it. You yeah. know, there's, there's nothing like it. When fame comes late, uh, I'm sure it's just as sweet as when it comes earlier. <laughs> Tune in to this week's episode of Meat and Three. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to HR and Happy Hour. It's five o'clock somewhere, and somewhere is Bushwick. I'm Kat Johnson, the Communications Director at HRN, joined by my co-host, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Hey, Kat. How are you today on this fine Thursday? Great. I'm in my lemon shirt, and there's going to be a reason for that later, but for now, it's just very sunny. I love it, and lemons are my favorite fruit, so I'm very happy. They are. Yeah. You've said that before. My favorite favorite. It's yeah. a, I think it's like an underrated fruit, but very it's underappreciated. Uh, very well utilized. Yes. We're also joined by Hannah Ford and our program manager. Hey, Kat, happy Thursday. I I recently used the jar of preserved lemons that I made, and I felt really accomplished and grown up, so I'm all about lemons, too. I'm so impressed. How hard hard is it to make preserved lemons? The opposite of hard. (laughs) Great. the easiest thing. I used Joan Nathan's, like, recipe, and it's just, it's lemons and salt. Great. Make you them, put a lemon in salt, right? Yeah, you, you That's the recipe. A lemon and some lemon juice and uh, just more salt than you can imagine. Shake it up and leave it in the fridge, and, and it's just so delicious. I have a bunch of lemons that Neil brought from California oh. when he was visiting last week, and I need to do that with them. Um, but I'm scared about if the jar needs to be sterilized. I don't think so. There's so much salt. Yeah, okay. I think the salt and the acid kind of, like, obviously, like, wash it as well as you possibly sure, can. Sure. But I think, yeah, the acid and the salt protects you from a lot of the like human error things that could happen. I have a jar that's just crying to be a preserved we'll, lemon jar. We'll have a preserved lemon party. Love it. Yeah. Um, our guest today, oh, I should say before we get to our guest, Amanda Wang in the booth, our engineer. Thank hello, you, hello. Amanda. Amanda, what are your feelings on lemons? 
You know, I, it's so funny that you asked about this. <laughs> because I was in California recently taking care of some family matters. My aunt has lemons the size of grapefruit. Oh, heck so yeah. It's crazy how big they are. <sighs> Whatever, California. We don't need you. <laughs> you know, they did also have a really nice rainy season recently. Mm. So I think that's probably why. Probably makes the lemons extra big and juicy. Yeah. Mm. I'm thirsty now. Me too. Well, I think we're all in luck. Our guest today is Kelly Rivers, the Sip Smith brand ambassador. Welcome, Kelly. Why, hello. Thank you for having me. And lemons are on our brain because she is here to talk about Sip Smith's new gin, which is called Lemon Drizzle Gin. Yes. So Lemon Drizzle Gin, just, just going to say, you can't talk poop about California. I mean, come on. I just moved from San Francisco to California and lemons are big and delicious and yummy and bitter and uh, best thing to do though with your preserved lemons is do three quarters salt one quarter sugar mm. what for yeah. the preserved lemons for the preserved lemons mm. and I like a bay leaf in there and some thyme okay yeah. will okay. you come to our lemon preserving party that we're <laughs> now going to have great okay what would happen if we added a little gin to the, to the mix. Well, because salt and acid and alcohol are a cooker, they will mm. cook the lemons faster. Oh. So they will denature the proteins of the lemons even quicker. Mm. So if you're going to do it in the fridge and not um, uh, seal them, you should be fine. Cool. So is that would that like make them a quick preserve? I mean, lemons are still fairly firm. There's a lot of pith. It's yeah. still going to take quite a while. Yeah. But you don't have to worry about any like bacteria growing in there. Well, hmm, maybe I'll do that then. Um, okay, so we have a few headlines slash recommended episodes for you that we're going to do really quick. Um, first, do we have any announcements? Yeah, we do. Okay. We have a beverage-themed announcement we to have? make. We do, you're right. We do. How could I forget? How could you forget? I've already announced it once on a podcast this week, so uh, <laughs> let me do it again. Uh, Go for it. And we have to talk about our important update. Yes. Uh, Friday, April 26th, we are hosting So You Think You Know Mezcal. Uh, our second annual edition with Lou Bank of Sacred Agave. He's going to be back in New York City from Chicago talking about the latest batch of rare agave expressions he has brought back from Oaxaca. Um, they are literally bottles of hand-labeled spirits that you cannot get here. So if you um, are really into mezcal or tequila or any sort of agave spirit at all, come to our event and get to taste some some things you've never had before. Um and our update on that is we are moving the event to a larger venue at El Cortez, which is around the corner from the studio and our office. Um, so, yeah, please join us. Yeah, tickets are on Eventbrite. You can search for So You Think You Know Mezcal. Or you can go on our social medias, uh, especially Facebook is good for those good old events, and find it there. That's April 26th. Be there or be square. It's going to be one for the books. Don't miss it. And at El Cortez, there's going to be, like, other beverage options and entertainment options following the event now, which is extra bonus cool. Yeah, make yeah, an and event. if you're a listener totally. of Happy Hour, you probably got very thirsty for some tiki drinks last week. Mm -hmm. um, very good zombies at El Cortez, so get there. Totally. Uh, okay, so now we have a few uh, shows we want to recommend to you. Let's, let's kick it. All righty. 
Um, so we are going to talk about Sipsmith's newest flavor, Lemon Drizzled Gin, today. But if you want to know more about the history of Sipsmith Gin, you can listen back to episode 52 of HR and Happy Hour, this very show, where we had on Jared Brown, the master distiller at Sipsmith. Uh, Jared is a fount of knowledge <laughs> on literally everything. So that was a fun one. Go back and check it out if you missed it. Yeah, that's a major highlight of our archives. And reaching back to another portion of our archives, episode 35 of The Speakeasy features Jim Ryan, the brand ambassador for Hendrix Gin. You can learn more about the popular spirit brand and which cocktails best utilize its many different botanicals. Um, check, Discover the quote, unusual Negroni, and find out how best to enjoy warm gin, which hmm. I don't think I've ever done, but I'm open to the possibility. <laughs> we also talked about warm gin on that episode of HR and Happy Hour mm-hmm. with Jared Brown. And that the gin fizz is the perfect breakfast, which mm-hmm. true. Can Indeed. argue. Um, and then for our last gin highlight, if you love drinking local, Brooklyn Gin is one to check out. On episode 75 of the Speakeasy, co-creator of Brooklyn Gin, Emil is this, em- I think it's supposed to be Emily Jatney, sits down with Damon Bolte to talk about being included in the Barclays Center's beverage program and their plans to expand, expand the artisanal gin company. And that was many years ago, and they definitely have expanded since then. So, Would you say we're steeped in gin here? Steeped in it. Or we're well on our way and about to be slightly yes. further along. Uh, so let's go back to the current gin at hand. Well, <laughs> uh, yes. Here so, it is. Kelly, um, do you want to tell us, like, What's in front of you? What are we mixing up? How are we going to try this lemon drizzle gin flavor today? Well, yeah. So first of all, uh, we have just passed National Gin and Tonic Day, which was on oh, the 9th. Man. It was on the 9th, uh, just a few days. Just but, do I live under a rock? But however, you have no fear. You have all some spring and summer to drink it, and International Gin and Tonic Day will bookend the summer by October 19th. Clever. We say it's a drink so nice, we celebrate it twice. Yeah. Um, so, but what we're doing, we're going to have, while we're talking, since it is happy hour, we're going to uh, be drinking our Sipsmith Lemon Drizzle Gin, the newest expression to come out into the United States earlier last month. It has been available in the UK um, for about three years now, wow. but we're just getting it over here to the US. So it's super exciting for us. And we're going to uh, pair it with some Fever Tree Mediterranean Tonic, the lighter style of the of their tonic line. So that way it brings out those those herbal and those citrus notes of the lemon drizzle. So for people that don't know, uh, Sipsmith London Dry, we started uh, the first distillery in London in almost 200 years. 2009, March 14th of 2009 is when we opened our uh, doors. We were uh, we actually challenged the law and won, you know, very much the, uh, the hippie kind of mentality of doing <laughs> the things the way it used to be done, the way it should be done, so to speak. And um, we became the first distillery to make gin. And one of the other things that was happening around in this, this heyday of gin, we're talking about the 1800s um, and early 1900s, was this thing um, called the Victorian-style gin that was basically the most popular in 1930. Unfortunately, in 1930, there was, uh, there was a little bit of prohibition going on. There was a little mm, bit touch, of a, touch hate, of that. Touch prohibition. Yeah. Gotta hate that. Always puts a damper on the drinking, right? And then you have a little bit of depression, you have war. And so about right by 1950, this idea of this Victorian-style gin was pretty much lost and forgotten. Mm. Um, the flavors that they had come out with um, or these styles were wet, which was, I don't know why they call it wet, but it was very pear-driven, lemon, orange, and mint. Mm. So when um, Jared, our master distiller, and our head distiller, Ollie, decided one day that they wanted to embody this history and this, this classic style of gin, they put their thinking caps on and decided that 
to highlight the citrus notes and those those big round notes um, of our of London gin and our London dry gin. And at the same time, it turns out what was very popular was uh, the Great British Bake Off. Now, if you've never <laughs> seen the Great British Bake Off, what you, are you doing? What are you doing, first of all? And second of all, if you're ever feeling down about your fellow man or woman, <laughs> just just get a gin and tonic and sit and watch an episode. It's the most uplifting thing I have ever seen in my life. It's just, it makes you feel good. It makes you smile. And uh, the season that was happening at the time, they were very much embracing this lemon drizzle cake. Mm. Now, lemon drizzle cake is like a tea cake in, in the UK. It is like a lemon pound cake. You squeeze some lemon juice on it, a little bit of lemon uh, royal icing on the top, a cup of tea, bing, bang, boom. It's a really nice thing. Um, and so this is where the tongue-in-cheek name for the lemon drizzle came from. So we basically take our recipe of 10 botanicals. We up the coriander by 30%. And then we have a flavor chamber, something that just the vapors go through. And in that, we add fresh lemon peel, lemon verbena. For those oh. who've never had lemon verbena, it smells a lot like tricks. Oh. Wait. Yeah. Huh. I need to do it side by side. I love lemon verbena. Yeah, but it's like one of those Tricks. things like you're like, this smells great. And someone says tricks and you're like, aha, Eureka. That's, that's what it, it is. Hmm. Most of I my. I can't wait to try this. Yeah. Okay. Now, why, why up the coriander uh, when you're playing around with lemon? Well, so basically coriander in a botanical blend, especially for gin, gives all the citrus notes. Oh. So it gives bright citrus notes, a little bitter notes, and it also will give a lot of pepper notes mm. that help round Balance. out the gin. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, all right, so while we're kind of, let's mix up some of these G&Ts, and yeah. also I would love to hear about, um, I think this is a, the, a very fun fact about you, you have a very extensive gin collection. <laughs> yes, I do have a very expensive. So I just said that I moved from San Francisco to New York um, to work here on the brand of Sipsmith, and I had to make some decisions in my life, and I decided that I was going to have to move my gin, as opposed to my 7,000 record collection, which is being housed at my friend's bar in Tahoe. <laughs> oh, boy. And um, What a tough decision. Yeah, to it, was, it was like my love of music or 1,300 bottles of gin. 1,300 1, bottles. How long did it take you to collect all and of those? And they're not the same. No, they're so they're all different. I actually have more than 1,300 bottles. I have almost in the 1,400 range, wow. but I only, like, so I'll only have, uh, let's say, Sipsmith once for the London Dry, but I have the different sizes and I have the different uh, vintages of it. Mm -hmm. wow. But I only consider that to be one. Mm -hmm. So, oh, wow. but the other thing I didn't know is uh, I couldn't get movers to drive me across the country because it is illegal to move alcohol across state ah. lines. And I couldn't convince them that I had 1,300 bottles of olive oil. <laughs> that just probably wasn't going to fly. So me and my really good friend um, took a lovely uh, trip across the country, uh, went to some lovely states. I bought another 20 bottles of gin along that drive. <laughs> and with a flat tire and some other technical difficulties, we got in the day right before BCB. So wow. <laughs> uh, BCB is Bar Convent Brooklyn. Yes, Bar Great. Convent Brooklyn, and yep. it's inaugural. Uh, so June fifth, I think, is what it was. Just yeah, not even a year ago. Not even a year ago. And so what ended up happening was most of my friends who were going to help me, mm. unbeknownst to them that I was bringing a seventeen foot truck full of gin with me, um, they were going to help me up my three flight walk up of my stairs. And so unfortunately, they all had to go to BCB and work. And so me and two of my other friends. 
basically carried everything up and it took me a week to be able to sit on the toilet properly without holding oh. myself up and down. Wow. Um, I was really rethinking life at that point. But um, the really nice thing was then we got to go to Blue Quarter with Oh, yes, yeah, so we did get to go to Blue, Blue Quarter <laughs> with Jared. Uh, and then eat some spicy noodles, too. Yes. Oh. Yeah. So, sorry, did you say how long it took you? Like, when did you start collecting gin? So, here. Actually, I'm much more interesting when you're drinking. Yes, we're um, passing down. Aren't we all, though? I, also, I just, like, while you were talking, the, I got a wafting lemon drizzle, like, just a little aroma trail. And smells it's so delicious. Summery. Oh, my Cheers. God. Cheers. It smells like Cheers. vacation. Cheers. Oh, yeah. I mean, Cheers. best vacation ever. So, basically, um, just a little bit about me. Mm. I uh, grew up in Europe. I was born in Oakland, grew up in Europe. I have lived in every continent but Antarctica. Wow. Um, I have four degrees in culinary art, thus the lemon preserving tips, and did my internship in Tokyo. My first uh, bartending job was in Japan. Um, it wasn't very fancy Japan at that point. It was in the late 90s. But one of the things that I was always compelled, like really engaged with was this idea of hospitality. Um, whether or not it was in kitchens or when I was bartending. But I never wanted to say, I didn't know what you wanted or I didn't have it. And this was also the same thing about my love affair with the ideology of 1950s housewives. Like, we all romanticize the aprons and the making of the dinner. We don't really like the politics so much, but we like that part of it. So I started to collect uh, weird liqueurs because I had these old cocktail Mr. Boston's from 1950s. And I remember I was up at Zigzag in Seattle, and I was sitting in front of Murray Stenson, who was a really famous bartender. He's kind of been credited for bringing back the last word. And I was sitting at his bar, and I was just like awestruck. I was like a fangirl. And mm. he made me a aviation. Mm. And I've seen aviations before, but I never understood, because we did, this was a time when we didn't have creme de violette. And he had four different types of creme de violettes because he had people bringing them from wherever they traveled. And I just fell in love with this idea of being able to do this. So I started off my collection with liqueurs. And at the time, whiskey was really big. So I opened, I opened up four different whiskey bars in the East Bay, collected whiskey. But I always loved gin. So I started to do gin because, you know, that's the classic cocktail. Two-thirds of all the drinks are made with gin because it carries, marries, and elevates a cocktail. Oh, I like that. So I've been collecting gin as a kind of the thing to collect probably for the last uh seven years now um i have been told by the gin guild in london i have the second largest gin collection in the world wow uh the first one being friends of mine the archivist in the isle of man and uh they gave me their list this year and they're up to 3700 so Whoa. got some time i got i got some work to do yeah. <laughs> so i get the impression from kind of like what you're saying, the inspiration behind collecting is to be able to always be hospitable and to have what people want to drink. So I assume that means that this is not a sealed bottle collection that you're actively drinking from it. I'm actively drinking from it, uh, which makes, you know, <laughs> my liver hurt sometimes. No, uh, <laughs> no, basically, it's a lot of it is uh, curiosity, wanting to know, like, ooh, what's that kind of a thing. Um, I like to invite people over. Um, people ask me all the time, what's your favorite gin? I don't have one, really. I don't. Sipsmith is, you know, has my heart and soul. But, you know, there's reasons to experiment with everything else. Um, and so, like, I even brought with me a few weird Sipsmith sampling things that we awesome. can mm. taste later if you want. But I have been eyeing this collection of jars <laughs> and bottles here, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's a little hodgepodge of, of, of things. Um, but, yeah, it's a lot of, you know... 
if we can't get people to understand what gin is, then we're not doing it right. You know, when we opened our distillery in 2009, there was 14 distilleries in England making everything. In 2018, there were 450 Whoa. distilleries in England. There was 15 alone in London, and they're making over 2,000 labels of gin. So yes, we changed the law, but yes, we opened it up to competitors. Mm-hmm. But we we invite those competitors because we want to encourage everyone to get on board to That's drink gin. So exciting! And what does that um, energy feel like with the explosion of distilleries right now? And do you think that that momentum is continuing growing tapering off as far as like will there be a saturation point what is that i mean like? everyone is afraid of the saturation point but mm-hmm. at the current moment i don't see one coming um everyone is people are getting into distilling um it's a good way to preserve what you have around you it's a good way to highlight local flair and color and flavor it's a good way to you know it, Bars were always a thing, a meeting place. You know, the hotel lobby was the place where men and women could get together and, and, and imbibe or talk about what was going on in the days. Distilleries have that same kind of feel. There's a distillery in your town or your neighborhood. You, get, you, you feel ownership and pride because of it. You know, you have someone come over and you're like, hey, look at my back bar. Look at my home bar. Do you know that this one comes from here and this one does that? We take ownership in that. We're along with them. It's like your favorite band in college finally making it big and you get really excited for them because they're like, they got their names and the bright lights and they're on magazine covers. I mean, you could say distillers are the rock stars of the culinary world. Mm-hmm. I think people might say that. Yeah, yeah. yeah we're going to say it. We're going to say it. Yeah. Sounds good. <laughs> um, besides London, where Sipsmith is based, um, what are other cities that you like to travel to for drinking and finding gin? Well, um, so even before I started working with Sipsmith about two years ago, uh, I actually stumbled upon Sipsmith in 2011 because my father was a big beer drinker and I happened to go to London because I like the weather. I'm probably the only person that goes to London because <laughs> I like the weather. And um, my father's a really big, big beer person. I knew that Michael Jackson, not the singer, but the beer historian, whiskey guy, had his office there. And he had passed away, and so I wanted to take a picture. Turns out that was where uh, Sip Smith's original distillery was. Wow. And I just popped my head in. I'm like, that's a still. It's a really nice still. And that's kind of how I started to learn about Sip Smith. And I'd been not smuggling, uh, you know, the... (laughs) legal department i was <laughs> gifting uh bottles of gin <laughs> sipsmith gin um uh, starting in 2011 i would go back uh three times a year to get more gin so london is definitely and england is definitely a hotbed um spain germany australia exploding in the gin scene um i would say the next big hot spots are going to be our south africa oh cool. uh, mexico you're talking about uh, agave and tequila. Mexico, as that I know of, has eight distilleries now making gin. Um, we Then you're also seeing things uh, kind of like uh, Japan is going crazy. At Tokyo Bar Show, 90% of it last year was gin. Wow. Really? Yeah. That's incredible. And what – so gin was 90. What percentage was whiskey? Not a lot. Yeah. I think, I mean, you also have Suntory and that's it. Well, I mean, there are other uh, whiskey distilleries. A lot of it is they're having uh, sourcing issues, very much like Mm. what Scotland was going through, what the U.S. was going through. People were consuming it faster than Mm -hmm. they could make it. Interesting. When, so as there's like a boom of distilleries of all sorts, but then also you have, I think, a lot of 
people that want to be specialized in a spirit and pe- for people who open a distillery and want to specialize in gin, what do you think it is about gin that makes a distiller decide that's going to be my spirit? What makes it unique in that way? Do you remember that feeling when you got that box of crayons open for the first time and you had all this possibility of colors? That's yeah. gin. Yeah. Think of the crayons as botanicals. Gin is not just juniper. Gin, it would be a very boring picture if it was just juniper. Um, it is all the colors of the, the box, and they work together in very like harmonious ways. Um, I always say that gin is the only spirit isn't about terroir. It's not about where it's made necessarily. It's about where it's been. Mm-hmm. It embodies travel. It embodies globalization maybe in a better way than most people think about globalization like your juniper has to comes from here your citrus comes from here your spices come from here so it is it does embody globally a thought process and coming together but subtle too it can be subtle and it can be incredibly bold Mm. there's i mean once you perfect your recipe and it does take a lot of trial and error you're not necessarily bound to just do that so for Sipsmith, that's why we have our London Dry, which everything is based on. And then we play with it. We have the VJOP, which stands for the very juniper overproof. <laughs> so three times the amount of juniper and a lot of the kick. Jared Brown says it's like running through a forest naked. Oh, he <laughs> said that when he was on our show, yeah. I think. And, and, when, and it's such a vivid visual. It is. It is a vivid. And when you meet him and you look at it, you're like, I get it now. You totally did that, didn't yeah. you? Well, and he used to be an underwear model. so He was an underwear well, model. That. Yeah. He's speaking from experience. Yeah. Um, but, Kelly, you were talking about, um, you know, the botanicals that make up. Um, and, and there are some traditional botanicals that do go into gin. But I want to know in your collection or in your gin travels, are there some super unusual botanicals or uh, we'll call them like scent elements that, that have gone in well, to I gins mean, that, that, that work or don't work? So the most expensive bottle of gin I ever bought up until that time was from Cambridge Distillery and it was called Anti-Gin, A-N-T-Y Gin. And it was a gin that was made with four botanicals, um, juniper being one of them, but the distillate was had foraged Norg- uh, Norwegian redwood ants in it. They Whoa. distilled ants. Wow. Because wood ants, one of the things they do when they try to devour the woods, they spit a folic acid mm. that it has a similar flavor profile of what citrus does in a still. Hmm. So that was, at the time, my most expensive bottle that I ever bought. They only made 100 bottles of it. I got really excited and spent way too much money. Sorry, How Mom. was it? Um, well, there's a thing. If I, no, I didn't have to pay the money for it, it would have been delicious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's one of those things where you pay a lot of money for something and you're like, ah, oh, we're oh. talking like small car. Are you, are you comfortable, yeah, are Whoa. you comfortable giving a sense of the scale of the, money? The that- bottle itself was about $600, not including shipping and duties. Oof. Because at that point I was being very, very to the nose and paid all the taxes and the things mm-hmm. and... I've, I've uh, matured since then. I've learned some things. I've yeah. had made a lot of friends in England that let me send bottles to their house. And then when I go visit the distillery, I pick them up. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, it was pretty pricey for my, yeah. my bartender budget at the time. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so now I have six different gins that have ants in them. 
not from the distillation process, but added after distillation. Okay. I was going to ask, like, what is the stage of them? Added afterwards. So the the best one I've ever had was out of Australia. Most of them are from out of Australia. And it has uh, the green butt at in it. Green butt ant. So a green butt ant is a large wood ant. And what you do is when you find them on a trail, you're supposed to pick it up and lick its butt. Cool. That's what I do every time I see an ant. With a green butt only. Oh, okay. Because it has... Stop doing that, Katie. (laughs) You gotta stop doing that. The red ones do not do that. (laughs) Oh, out. Yeah. Um, And why uh, why would one do that? It basically tastes like flat 7-Up. Okay. Weird. Yeah. So uh, insects are coming very popular um, in, in distillation. There is a gin that is being held for me in Belgium right now that has uh, <laughs> juniper berries that a animal ate mm. and then excruci- like yeah, passed it- through, and then they took them and distilled that. It's like the, co- like the Vietnamese coffee. Kona coffee? Yeah. Um, I don't remember. I think it's a... So like a badger? It might be a cow. Mm. Wow. I don't remember. But the unfortunate problem is it looks like Mountain Dew, the color of it. Oh, I don't yeah. know if I love that. Yeah, but it's one of those things. You got to try it once, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Twice have you been drinking. But um, <laughs> So, yeah, there's a lot of really weird things. Um, Oregon has got a lot of distilleries that are making things with local foraged uh, juniper. Juniper, mm-hmm. there's over 30 species of it. It grows in every continent. Oh, it's another reason why gin is so widely globally popular because it's indigenous to everything. Yeah. Um, Let's take a quick break and we'll come back. We'll talk more gin. We'll talk gin and tonics. I'm I'm Mm. interested to hear more about gin and tonics, what seems like a very simple combination, but I'm sure there's more to it. As I'm learning about ants and gin, there must be more to gin and tonics, right? That's right. All right. Well, we're we're going to drink some gin and tonics real quick and we will be right back. We'll be back. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Dave Arnold, and I'm the host of Cooking Issues here on Heritage Radio Network. Every week, I answer listeners' questions on the latest innovative techniques, equipment, and ingredients in the food world. Have a question about hot rodding your oven to make great pizza? Give us a call. Hydrocolloids, sous vide, liquid nitrogen? No problem. You can find Cooking Issues wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. My name is Brandon Hoy, co-owner of Roberta's. A super-duper-awesome place. Roberta's is a very, 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 very proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. We're also super-awesome. Thank you, Heritage. Thank you, Roberta's. Thanks, Brandon Hoy. (laughs) Um, Okay, we're back. Uh, We're talking about gin. There's so much... I thought I knew gin, like, fairly well. I, like, I know botanicals. I know juniper. I have never heard about putting ants in gin. That is a new world. So I have a really fun juniper anecdote, which is last night, my partner, Christopher, who is a huge nerd, decided that he (laughs) was going to take the test to get on Jeopardy. And one of the questions was asking about a botanical that was in gin. And of course, I was helping him. Yes. (gasps) And he didn't know the answer. He didn't know the answer. Well, 
in my all the times of watching uh, Jeopardy, there was nothing ever about uh, Juniper. Yeah, they say that for the test questions, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Easy ones. <laughs> Just so you think you're going to do well. We do have a Jeopardy champion in the HRN family. We do, oh, I know. remember Noam. Yeah. Um, winner of Jeopardy and Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. I, I did a test once for Millionaire and didn't make it on. It's very hard. I'm I very just don't, even if I did know stuff, like. It's a pressure. It's a pressure. I, I wouldn't yeah. be able to do it on yeah. camera. I'm really good at Dave and Busters. <laughs> I, I, I rule on that. I'm only good at trivia if it's at a bar. Can't, can't have a camera in front of me. I'm um, stick to Guitar Hero. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's talk about, so we're, we're drinking the Lemon Drizzle Sip Smith. Let's talk about the bottle design a little bit. It is a lovely shade of yellow. Yeah, the yellow is uh, to highlight the amounts of uh, citrus, not only the dried lemon peel, but the fresh lemon peel in it. Um, the bottle has our lovely swan. It is not a duck. It is not a goose. It is a swan because of two things. One, the swan is protected by Her Royal Majesty. Um, it is the bird of the British crown. If I say if any bird needs to be protected by the crown, it is a swan. They are not very nice. <laughs> I was attacked as a child at five and it's shaped my entire idea of birds. Um, are you getting desensitized now working with Sipsmith or is it a no, little it, it was a really a bad attack shocker. like like my father my hero couldn't save me couldn't like seeing oh him God. run after a swan and fall in the mud on his face oh. like like therapy-esque type yeah, of this hatred is for swans an evil an evil swan but not swans nice. in a, st- a still is really good because the swan neck is where the crook of the top of the still where the vapor turns back into liquid so very important for distillation so i have to like get over my fear of hatred of swans but so there we have the swan on the front we also have a lovely flower which is the flower of the lemon verbena Mm -hmm. um on it and then what else do we have and the lemons my favorite is this little guy on the edge of the bottle holding up the british flag um he is basically an exact replica of a design for the first illustration of the distiller. So Jerry Browning was looking for our recipe um, for London Dry, went through a lot of historic books, and he found this illustration that wasn't copyrighted Hmm. uh, about what a distiller looked like. So there he is now prominently on all of our bottles. He is probably my favorite little little figure head of it. I really want to make a tiki mug out of him. Oh, Ooh. that's yeah. very on uh, on topic for us lately. We've been do- talking a lot a lot about tiki. Wait, could you make a tiki drink with this gin? I know that might be a little weird because it's not rum. But... Not exactly. Okay, think about it this way: um, tiki and gin are actually BFFs. Huh. There are eight classic cocktails, uh, tiki cocktails that have gin in them. Wow! Uh, and if you think about how a tiki cocktail is made. You have to add lots of like citrus and you have spice notes or allspice dram. That's already in the gin. Mm-hmm. So you don't necessarily have to add that much more because those notes and flavors are there. So if you are a tiki person that maybe doesn't want all that sweetness or the fruit juice, try maybe looking for a gin tiki cocktail because it's in the distillate part of it. Mm. You are speaking right to my soul, Kelly. Me too. Agree. Yeah. We're going to do some gin tiki. Also, gin uh, loves tropical flavors like coconut milk. There's a oh. really amazing, amazing drink from the 50s called the Kamiana, which is a London dry gin, uh, half of a lemon, and coconut water. Yes, please. Yeah, I'm into that. So with our lemon drizzle, you don't yeah. even have to have the lemon. It's in the gin, so it's that and coconut water, one, two. Easy drinking, as my grandmother says, because life is too <laughs> difficult. Drinking shouldn't have to be. 
And I feel like it's probably slightly hangover proof because you're you're re- you're bringing back the electrolytes that you're losing from the alcohol, right? Everything sure hangover proof if you do it in moderation. Oh. <laughs> coconut water, coconut water. <laughs> so I have to ask because I think um, there might be some folks out there who just by a rule like avoid flavored alcohols of any kind. Why is like lemon drizzle gin different from, I apologize in advance for going there, but like a flavored Smirnoff vodka? Well, first of all, we're not a flavored gin. I'm just going to put it out there because we don't add anything after distillation except for water. So it is, uh, you could say a signature botanical. Mm. We like to think of it as just another expression of historical relevance of what gin is. So again, going back to that 1930s style of a less botanically driven, less juniper driven, and we highlight the other citrus parts of it. We also add in the distillation vanilla beans, Mm -hmm. and we up the cinnamon in our original recipe to kind of give that spice, that little sweetness, and the the base notes of the gin. Just thinking of the spice and um, thinking of um, cocktail, a cocktail that we had on Monday at our board meeting that Souther was kind enough to make for us, um, also at Blue Quarter. Um, what sort of a punch would you make with this lemon drizzle gin for spring, let's say? So one of my favorite of the springtime uh, cocktails is very much going along the summer cups, very popular in the UK. Again, like uh, a Pimm's cup, mm-hmm. kind of like a Pimm's mm-hmm. cup. Yeah. Basically what I like to do, um, Again, my grandparents are from South Georgia, Mississippi, and Alabama, and we call it porch drinking. <laughs> so you sit on the porch, you got it, you're on your, you know, you're talking, neighbors are going by, you're on the swing, you finish the whole thing, <laughs> and you haven't said anything to upset your family yet. So low proof is kind of the way to go for me. <laughs> so one of my favorite things to do with our lemon drizzle is to take this, a little bit of Earl Grey tea. Mm-hmm. Now you could make the tea on its own, or you could put two tea bags in our 750 let it sit there for about two hours take it out then you mix that with a little bit of maraschino uh, liqueur a little bit of, of sweet vermouth i really like coqui torino because it's got a little like spice and bitterness to it lemonade soda water mm. sounds awesome i'll meet you on the porch yeah and if you yeah. got some yeah, cinnamon stick or maybe an allspice or love it just put that in there and just kind of let it sit there. Would you Lots put them in the bottle with the tea bag during the infusion, I would or would not. you do that later? I would do it later, okay. um, just because you want the uh, bitterness from that bergamot to get into the liquor, as opposed mm. to the cinnamon or the star anise. It's mm. kind of like a little Ar- Ar- Arnold Palmery, like yes. tea and lemon. Yeah. yeah, and and lovely, lovely gin. And, and maybe gin. our friends from Great British Bake Off could send us a recipe for a little lemon drizzle cake. And then you're good to have, and you're just good to go. I think um, we should do one of our happy hour punches yeah. with lemon drizzle. Very, very into that. Um, uh, Joe's gin and tonic. Gin and tonic, yes. So let's talk about why the tonic you're choosing matters. You mentioned that you p- picked Fever Tree for a specific reason. It's a little bit more of like a subtle, lighter uh, tonic. But why, why does that matter when you're trying to pair a tonic with a gin? So... Uh, as a gin educator, and I've been one for about 15 years now, um, been able to travel the world teaching people about gin, the hardest thing is people have a bad idea of gin. Maybe they uh, imbibed a little too much in high school and college. Uh, maybe they stole it from their grandparents, or they just believe that it's an old person's drink or don't know necessarily how to drink it. 
And so the hardest thing to get past is that idea that it gin has grown up. Maybe, hopefully you've grown up and you don't drink like you did in high school and college anymore. But gin has definitely grown up. But so has tonic. And so the most important things when you're making a gin and tonic is carbonation. You want to have as many bubbles as you possibly can because you want those citrus notes and the floral notes of the gin to get into the bubbles and come up to the top. So mm. along with high carbonation, you want lots of ice because you want it to be cool and refreshing and sessionable. So one of the great things about Fever Tree is they create in bottles for a single pour. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't sit around and get flat. So carbonation for me is always key. Next thing you want to know is you want to know about your quinine, the bittering agent, the chichona bark, and how much is in it. And then the next thing is the sugar it's made from. Because depending on what that is, it can make it sweeter, it can make it bitter, but it can also make it heavy. Mm. So um, those are kind of the ways to go about thinking about your tonics. Nice. Do you have um, in the tonic concentrate family any that are particularly nice pairings for any of the Sipsmith gins? So the, you, the tonic syrups? Yeah. Because um, I have a soda stream at home. I try not to like buy too many pre-made sodas. Yes. Um, so when you're ma- using uh, a, a pre-made tonic syrup, um, go with something that has had to go through a packing company because there is a disease that comes from ingesting too much quinine. It's called chichonaism. Chichonaism is a real disease, and when you first get chichonaism, the, the symptoms are headache, nausea, lazy, uh, lethargy, um, upset stomachs, uh, warm, hot, cold, basically everything that mm. is associated with a hangover. And it isn't until you start getting body splotches oh. and color disserations that you realize that there is something very wrong. Wow. So bars and people that make their own tonic syrup, you just have to be aware because you don't know how much bittering agent or how much quinine is in that powder or that bark. And so really go with somebody that's already gone through like the FDA mm-hmm. or the, you know, the food and beverage that had to tear it apart. So that is my warning about Important uh, safety note. Thank you. Safety yes. note about uh, quinine. And, and sorry, while we're on the safety note, then, um, uh, how many tonics should I be limiting myself to from one day to the next? Or is this something that is difficult to do with a commercial tonic? It is very difficult to do with a commercial tonic. Um, I do suggest drinking water as you in- imbibe. Always good advice. Yeah. Drink um, water. Drink water. Yeah. Always yes. always smart in general, too. Ta- absolutely. Okay. Um, so then, as we um, provided we're, we're being safe, we're going through it vetted, um, sourcing... Um, do you have any tonic syrups that you particularly recommend? So I particularly recommend uh, Small Hand Foods, uh, their tonic syrup. It uh, seems to be very much the style of the Schweppes when it was tonic, gin and tonics here in the United States were uh, popularized. I will tell you, and you can't tell anybody else, so everyone listening can't tell anybody else. Earmuffs, Shh. people. Um, I'm a gin drinker that doesn't like tonic. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, so <laughs> I could tell you a lot of tonics I don't like. Mm. But, uh, but that would be most all of them. Yes. I was unfortunately diagnosed as a super taster about 12 years ago. So uh, tonic, so super bitter. Super bitter. Huh. Very difficult. So my friend uh, Jennifer Coleau, who created Small Hand Foods, she and I worked together in San Francisco while she was creating the syrup. And she would test it on me. Um, she wanted to know how I felt about it. And if I said I liked it, she would be like, no, it's not right. 
because <laughs> she wanted that classic like 1830s like schweppe sweat mm. recipe hmm. nice very that, interesting that is fascinating so with your um supercharged palate what is your go-to gin drink like what do you find to be the most like so if i pleasant? want something nice and sessionable and refreshing i just i love the word sessionable sorry about that i uh, too that's good um uh, i like a gin reckies mm, so cool. uh just take a half of lime squeeze it in Pour the gin on top, lots of ice, nice carbonated soda water. Mm-hmm. Really quick and easy, and you can just kind of keep topping it off. Uh, the Negroni is my drink of choice yeah. for, for gin uh, on equal parts. It just is a, a drink better than the sum of its parts. Definitely. True. Love a Negroni. Um, all right, well, so should we do some trivia? Or we should, it, uh, but I, I want to know what's in these little, in oh, these yeah. little jars, oh. jars of tricks. Well, first of all, remember how I said that gin is not just a juniper? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, everyone likes to be proven wrong. So the guys <laughs> at the distillery decided that they were going to distill this thing called Out and Out. Um, there are old like pictures of like gin houses from the 1700s, and one of them was just called Table Gin, and it was basically where they would take distillate and soak juniper berries in it. So our distillers decided that they wanted to see what that was. They actually distilled the juniper berries in the English wheat, and they bottled at 37.5. So this would be a table gin Mm -hmm. but they call it out and out um so i brought that for us to like try yeah if you want to yeah Yeah. we can use it here we have some cups here and i will pass it around all right we're gonna you start us keep bumping into my microphone sorry what else do we have so um the lemon drizzle when we decided to start making it we did it in this thing which was kind of like a mail order um delivery system uh we call it the sipping society and you sign up and twice um or once every other month you get a, a gin that's a one-off with a gin liqueur and uh the lemon drizzle was our first unfortunately they don't they don't ship it outside of the u.s so or outside of the uk so it's difficult but this is probably the first one that made me go oh gin is it's okay to be fun it's okay to not take yourself so seriously. So this is the strawberries and cream. Whoa. Yeah. Ooh. So hold on. Also, I have to say I love the out and out. Yeah. It's just juniper and it really highlights juniper at different different levels. Mm-hmm. All right. So I don't know if I can. There we go. So the strawberries and cream. <laughs> it's a beautiful color too. It's sort of like a soft pinky orange. Mm. Yep. It smells like jam. You said that the out and out was thirty seven percent, thirty seven point five percent alcohol. What would uh, like? What's what are the more classic ones? So uh, in the U.S., gin has to be at forty percent alcohol. Okay. In the U.K., it has to be above thirty seven. Okay. So a uh, little different laws. Our London Dry is forty one point six percent alcohol. All right. What do you guys think about the oh, strawberries and cream? It's so good. Wait, I, I want you to try it, but I also don't want to let go of it. I think oh. the Mary Berry would really enjoy that one. I want it. Yeah, I kind of want to like pour it on cake. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's a classic cocktail that comes out of Chicago. It's called the White Cargo. Um, there was an ice shortage in Chicago at this one point, so bartenders had to get really ex- interested of how they were cooling down their drinks. So the White Cargo is uh, London Dry Gin and Vanilla Ice Cream. <laughs> I'm into it. So we did this with the the strawberries and cream and made the best milkshake ever. Oh my god! The, wow, wow, that um, sounds amazing. 
Because this is delicious on its own. Just had, I, I was reading yesterday, Ina Garten's tip is to use melted vanilla ice cream in place of creme anglaise, which I, I, I don't know, I've got to take issue with it, but um, that was like her shortcut on Food 52 yesterday. Hmm. I mean, it, I can understand why that would be a shortcut. My favorite thing is to make oatmeal and then scoop vanilla ice cream on top of it instead of using milk because the middle of the, van- the oatmeal gets really hot and it takes, burns your mouth. That's so smart. So brilliant. S- scoop ice cream on top of it, it becomes the milk, right? Yeah. And it melts faster and it cools down your oatmeal faster. And a little genius. bit of sweetness. Yeah. Yeah. You're a genius. And I, honestly, I think the, the strawberries and cream gin over top could just be... Breakfast of champions cream and a little gin liqueur. <laughs> Sign me up. When I start coming to work, like, hey, guys, you'll know what I've been doing. Had oatmeal again, didn't you? (laughs) Uh, uh, Are we trying more stuff? Yeah, we'll try one more. Um, One more. We could could do it after trivia as as a prize. Okay, so this one is, (laughs) this is called the Raffles 1915. Oh. So Raffles. Raffles. We know that name. Raffles Hotel. Mm Mm-hmm. and basically, the, do we know what the drink comes from, the Raffles Hotel? The Singapore Sling. The Singapore really? Sling. Did I win? Look at you. You did win. So basically, the Singapore Sling is a tiki drink. Yeah. Um, gin-based. And what happened was, uh, over the years, um, at the Raffles Hotel in Singapore, it was made from a mix. It wasn't very good. <laughs> and so the Raffles Hotel has decided that they were going to redo the Long Bar, which is the name of the bar where it comes from. And they got a really great bar manager, but they reached out to, to a sipsmith to make them a gin. Mm. And so, first of all, our founder, uh, Sam, he's great, 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 maybe another great uncle, was actually Raffles. Wow. So there's, wow. A, there's fam- familiarity to that. And so Jared Brown uh, basically looked through the history books, looked through... Uh, logs of what was imported into Singapore and basically found the botanicals that would have probably been in a gin that was being imported into Singapore at the time when the Raffles crate was created in 1915. So you can only get this gin at the Raffles Hotel in a Singapore sling. I am so excited to be trying it because Jared also talked about this and I never thought that I would have the chance to sit in this very studio and try some. Well, there um, we go. Plus 10,000 points to Kelly. Whoop, whoop. This is so cool. It's, it's really it's good. It's really nice. Um, can you, it has like, I'm having a really hard time putting my finger on it, but you know when you have like a dry lime pith that's kind of, it's not as bitter anymore. It's like a little bit like caramely toasty what's, kind of like what's, kind of what's the, giving me that taste a lot of it is going to be the what we make it from in the copper so mm. you're getting a lot more of the the grain that's coming out of it and we highlight the spice notes in it so we're highlighting that um orris and that angelica and that cinnamon and that cassia a little bit more mm-hmm. so we're we're toning down those citrus notes because again citrus at that time in 1915 were expensive so we weren't using as much of them it's, a, it's a more savory, like warm, mm-hmm. lovely flavor. Yeah. yeah. Could you describe the flavor of Angelica? <laughs> so Angelica and Oris, it's um, very classic in most London dry gins. I call them the party botanicals. <laughs> um, they're your friend that is like, no one is a wallflower. They're like, hey, you, hey, you. We're going to go dance. They What they do is they bind to other... Um, botanicals and bring them over 
the, uh, over the still, the distillate part at a higher, at a quicker. Hmm. So let's say your citrus, which is a hard uh, botanical to break down, all of a sudden the angelica bond, bonds to it and pulls it over before it normally would go over. So it would be lighter citrus notes as opposed uh-huh. to like riny, pithy, bitter citrus notes. Huh. So that's what angelica and orris do. Um, angelica for me in a dried powder kind of has this kind of earthy quality, almost kind of like uh, if you took a bunch of dried mushrooms and stood away from them and you can still kind of smell them. Mm-hmm. And orris is the root of the lily. So it gives a lot of floral notes. So on their own, maybe not very interesting. You wonder why they're in gin, but they really do bring everything together. Every botanical has a job. Yes. And they're the party botanicals. <laughs> their job is it. to party. Yeah. They're like, whoop, whoop. we like to party. <laughs> uh, Speaking of parties, it's time for a trivia party. You ready for trivia? <laughs> uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, yes. So I wrote the questions and no one else has seen the answer. So you're not alone. Okay. You have a team. And I decided that in honor of Sip Smith's birthplace, London, that I would write some trivia about food and Brexit. <laughs> and Brexit. Okay. I went there. Good okay. <laughs> All right. Question number one. CRU, a firm offering analysis of the global metals business, announced that Brexit was a huge opportunity for what type of food packaging? Metals business. Metals business? Cans? Cans? Yeah, cans or tins. I guess they should be called tins if we're being proper. Tinned foods, you know, because people got to like... Stock up. Because the times are coming. Yes. The preppers. Oh, man. I'm going to stock up on the jelly so I can buy a house. (laughs) Tinned fish and things like that. Mm, I stock up on tinned fish anyway. Kippers. That's not to love. Mm. All right. Question number two. Brexit would mean an end to the free flow of food across borders, spelling nightmares for the supply chain. A team from London's Imperial College estimated that the line of trucks on the British side of the English Channel might stretch how many miles long? Is it... 9, 17, 29, or 36. It's very, very particular. Uh, 26? It was 29 or 36. <laughs> oh, damn. So no. Well, now I have to go into the psychology of cat writing the question. <laughs> Just pick one. I, I vote for 29. 29 is right. Woo-hoo! Oh, nice. Done. Uh, that was only the British side that what didn't count the French side. It's funny that it's in miles, though. Uh, I converted it. Okay, good. <laughs> That's what was throwing me off. Yeah. Uh, okay. It's a trick question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Brexit is complicated, and many writers have spent the past several years trying to explain it to us. The Times columnist Hugo Rifkind came up with an analogy on Twitter in which he compared Brexit to what imaginary nautical craft made out of a dairy product. Say it again. Columnist Hugo Rifkin came up with an analogy on Twitter in which he compared Brexit to what imaginary nautical craft made of a dairy product. An imaginary nautical craft. Well, no. So it's not a boat. These things together are imaginary. The nautical craft's a real thing. And the dairy product's a real thing. I'll give you a hint. Think, it's a, 
think Beatles. Oh, a submarine. A, like a, a cheese, yellow cheese submarine? Yellow That's it. Yellow cheese. Like a government cheese? He said, quote, Why? Why? He said, quote unquote, <laughs> it's Brexit's like a cheese submarine. It's cheese and it's a submarine. How good could it possibly be? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Can't argue with that. Uh, I, I can. I, I can argue with that. <laughs> you think a cheese su- submarine's good? Um, yeah. yeah I mean, a submarine okay. sandwich? Everyone loves wet cheese. <laughs> well, I mean, if the submarine had was full of cheese. <laughs> right. That would be I, like, I, I kind of failed to see the problem here. <laughs> All right. Question number four. Even Sipsmith might not be able to escape the effects of Brexit. What botanical would be harder to come by as it's sourced from the Mediterranean? This is according this to is a, a roundup of uh, foods that would be affected. And gin was one of them. Uh, citrus and juniper. Juniper. Mm. Yes. All right. Last question. The British company Emergency Food Storage has tapped into the Brexit prepper population by introducing a stockpile kit that includes 60 servings of main meals, 48 portions of meat, a water filter, and a fire starter. What did they name it? <laughs> okay, you what's our the Jeopardy sensibility? Music? Like, what? Like what uh... Is it a food pun? No, it's, it's something... It's very obvious. The prep kit? It's How alliterative, obvious? and it's referencing... How Brexit? many words? Three. Bread, bread, Brexit bread box. You're very close. Remove one of the words. The Brexit box. Brexit box. That's it. Oh, yes. Okay. Well, I think they should have called it the Brexit bread box. Personally, that's actually really good. Yeah, I, I like that. It should have hit me up for some additional. Is it bigger than a bread box? I mean, I hope it's bigger than a bread <laughs> I box. I sure hope so because you wouldn't be prepped for much. But now oh. I have the song Firestarter stuck in my head. <laughs> Now I'm just thinking about my like end times um, gin collection being insufficient and now how I need to go. Mm. Well, after this, I'll give you directions to my house and we can just hole up and drink all of the gin. While preserving some lemons for the end of time. My question is, why doesn't the Brexit box include gin in it? Right. That's what I thought you were going to say. It was like, there's 60 meals and 48 meats. and I think they just assume that everyone's going to already have the gin stocked up. If they're smart. So they've already done the gin, so we... (laughs) You have to sustain on something else. Yeah. I know it's true. Mm. Hmm. Okay. Um, well, I like uh, Plan B over here, which is um, drink gin, <laughs> buy more gin, make preserved lemons, and have a yes. lemony and ginny spring into summer. Yes. Um, um, thanks for bringing us this lemon drizzle gin, Kelly. Oh, it's our pleasure. Delightful. Where is yeah. a good place to get this in the city? Aster? Aster is one of my favorite. I know Broadway uh, Liquors over by the Federal Building. Um, they are carrying the lemon drizzle. Basically, wherever fine spirits are sold. Mm-hmm. And if your fine, local fine spirits store does not have it, you should ask for it. What a good idea. Yes. <laughs> yes. And you really should ask for it because it is so good. Just it's like delicious. It's made for summer. Yes. Yes. It is, uh, it is very sessionable. Yes. <laughs> word of the day i'm gonna keep using that word yum thank um, you kelly for the treats Thanks well thank you so much for having me hour. um and listening to me prattle on about my favorite subject gin yes with joy anytime yes Sweet. thank you for educating us 
again, and I hope we'll do it again soon. Yes, most definitely. All right. Well, I think that's going to wrap up our show. Thanks to Amanda Wang, our engineer. Yay! Thanks, Amanda. Thanks to Hannah Forden and to Katie Mosman-Wadler. Thanks, Thanks, Kat. Kat. All right. We'll be back next week. HRN Happy Hour is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com heritage. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.